0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website.
1: Good evening, and welcome everybody to this meeting with one of the most interesting, one of the most exciting, and often one of the most disturbing of authors in the French language today. Laila Slimani. Laila Slimani is French Moroccan. She grew up in Morocco, but moved to France at the age of 17. She studied political science and media studies at the Science Pool and at the Collège Supérieure de Commerce de Paris. Before she worked as a journalist at Chan Afrique, where she reported on the Arab Spring in Tunisia, among other things, and was briefly arrested in 2011. She quit her job as a journalist in order to write a novel but wasn't very satisfied with the attempt. It was never published. In 2013, she was giving, given a fiction writing course as a Christmas present from her family. And after that experience came her first novel, In the Garden of the Ogre, recently published in English under the title Adele. It's a tight, dark story of a woman addicted to sex, and intense desire to be an object for men, a story of shame, desire, and lust for destruction. It has been called a modern version of Madame Bovary. But it is her second novel, which is the occasion for the talk tonight, the novel Chanson Douze, which is published these days in Norwegian by Kaplan Dam as Vugesang, in an excellent translation by Thomas Lundbo. Chanson Dus or Vugesang, did not become a small sensation. It became a very big sensation. Laila Slimani was awarded the Goncourt Prize, the most prestigious literary prize in France. The book is published or will be published in close to 40 countries. The reviews were outstanding. It's a brilliant, horrifying book with its naked open sentence, the baby is dead. A few sentences later, we are told, the girl was still alive when the help came. What happened? An ambitious young couple hires a nanny for the children the nanny comes as some miraculous savior, a Mary Poppins character, who gives the children and the family all the love and care they could want, with excellent food and clean cupboards as a bonus. But being nanny is as complicated as hiring a nanny, in a position where your love is purchased. For small wages, you will love the children until you are no longer wanted. Your job is to love the children without them loving you more than their parents. The power balance is never stable in a house with a nanny. And a nanny always comes from somewhere. She has a past even if she has no other life. Poverty comes in many versions, and sometimes they come all at once. Lila Slimani's language is at the same time deceivingly flat and slowly intense. Her style has been compared to Hulebek. Albert Camus is perhaps more fitting. In Slimane's stories, we can recognize ourselves as strangers in our own life, strangers to those closest to us. In the parents' tragedy, we risk recognizing our worst fears so strongly that we forget the tragedy of the nanny. But we shouldn't. Like a poor poor woman's version of Medea, who killed the children when Jason left her, the nanny can revenge her life by killing the children when her love is rejected and her life reveals itself as totally empty. By directly confronting difficult subjects, Slimane does not make reading easy. Her latest stories, published in English, tells of rape of a young girl, but it is told through the eyes of the rapist, a young boy. The young boy is presented as almost likeable. As Slimane says of her writing in an interview with The New Yorker, I write about the things I'm most afraid of, and like many women, I fear the death of my children, and I fear being raped. Writing allows me to feel a little less afraid. Lila Slimane is a brilliant author, and to talk with her tonight, we are happy to have Maria Horvay, critic, artist historian and since January, 2018, editor of the literary magazine Windua. Please give them both a very warm welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andreas. Welcome to the stage. Thank Lilla. So um, most of the reviews and most of the articles I've read about your book. Chanson Doos, Vugesang, I'll refer to it as lullaby in this conversation. Um, They have, like Andreas did, pointed to this first sentence, the baby is dead. I read somewhere uh, that uh, someone who wrote that uh, with this sentence, you out Hemingway, Hemingway, (laughs) uh, which I thought was a very nice um, formulation. Um, I thought we might begin here as well at this very point, the baby is dead. Was this the first sentence you wrote of Lullaby? Or did you start somewhere else and end up, come back to the opening later?
0: Um, you know it's very difficult to say actually because people usually think that when you're a novelist you begin one day you say okay now I'm going to write a novel about a nanny who kills children how could I begin and then you begin and you write this but it's not like that you know one day probably in in an airport or in my country house I had this idea oh yeah writing about a nanny and I put that on a notebook writing about a nanny and a few months later Uh, I read an article about a nanny who killed two children, and I put in the notebook, and the nanny could be a killer. And so that's like that. It's progressive. You think about this, and it becomes an obsession. and And then you can only think about that, and you begin. And actually, when I had the idea that she was going to kill the children, I knew that I didn't want to... Um, write the scene of the assassination for me it was not interesting I don't want to kill children because when you write the killing of children as a writer you feel that you you are killing them and I was avoiding this this scene I was avoiding that because it was so violent I didn't know how to do that and at one point I just imagined okay you're a writer you're coming into an apartment you're finding two corpses, and then you have, as a writer and as a, an investigator, to try to understand what happened. So I describe that as a writer and as a policeman, with a certain distance, just trying to understand what happened here. What are the, the clues? What are the, the things I can use to try to uh, understand this story? and you know he was uh, referring to camus mm-hmm. and the first sentence of the the stranger l'etranger is today mom is dead aujourd'hui maman est morte and a very famous uh, french critic asked me so of course um, you were referring to camus with your sentence the baby is dead and i was like Oh no, not at <laughs> all. But as, of course, I said yes. Uh, of course, I was referring to Camus. But the truth is that I was not referring to Camus. But it was—I think—it was unconscious because it's one of my favorite novels. So I was probably influenced by, by this novel. But I wanted something very, very simple, very neat, very precise because it's so violent that the only way to say it is.
2: Just say it. The baby is dead. Yeah. To me, reading uh, reading the book, uh, this first sentence is is almost like a relief because you know you you, you dread reading a book about uh, children being 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 violently killed. And once, but it's almost over with with the very first few sentences, uh, and then you can go on to, to to think about what what did happen, what happened here, what. Uh, what lies behind this action? Was that the way you intended it? it, it yeah, well? exactly. And
0: um, I must say that when I began to write this part, the the, three, the first three pages, I wrote them, it was very easy to write that because it's so violent, it's so enormous that it's very easy to write. You know, it's much more difficult to write about changing diapers or going to the park or just the day-to-day life because it's boring, it's not very interesting. But that, it was actually very easy and very exciting to to write the, the three pages and then I put them away and I never corrected them until the end of the book and I never read them until the end of the book but it was there and mm. it was haunting me It was and when my publisher read the, the three pages he said, okay, we need to put that at the beginning of the book, mm. that's the beginning
2: of your book. Mm. And then you write go back and write up until that point and um, as Andreas mentioned uh, the setting is—it's a young uh, family, a young Parisian couple that's called Miriam and Paul, um, and they have two young children. Uh, you don't explicitly mention their their uh, ages, but you get the sense that Mila, the oldest, is she goes to school, yeah, so she's yeah, probably six. Six, and yeah. then the the young, the baby. Uh, who just walks with Adam? He, so yeah. one, yeah, right exactly. Yeah, around yeah. And 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 um, and Miriam, the mother, she stayed at home with them uh, throughout their early childhood, but now she needs, uh, she wants to go back to work. Uh, she she starts to feel stifled by by this intense need uh, to stay at home and care for only her children, and um, so they go on the search for a nanny and they settle on Louise. She comes with glowing references and she, like from the start she makes their life so much easier you know, she she cooks she cleans and the cher- and the children they really take to her they they, they start to really love her um, but of course as the novel progresses um Louise's place in the family and and and, and the family dynamics starts to get more and more complicated and and it's this dynamic that, that seems to interest you as a writer, isn't it? Like the dynamic between the hired help and the family. Yeah,
0: because a relationship with the nanny is a very, very particular relationship. And I think that it can compare to any uh, other relationship. Because uh, at the same time, it's a very intimate relationship. Because you share a space. You share the love for two children, two or more. Uh, you share secrets, because uh, actually a nanny, she knows everything about you. You know, I spent a lot of time in uh, public parks in Paris when I was writing the book, speaking with nannies. And I can tell you that a lot of them told me You know, I know that my employer is an alcoholic. I know that when she comes from work, I know that she drinks and that she hides the bottle uh, uh, under her bed. Another one said, uh, yeah, I know that they hide to fight, but they are fighting all the time. I can tell you that they are going to divorce uh, before the the end of the year. So they know everything, even very intimate things. But at the same time, even if it's intimate, she's a stranger. She doesn't belong to the family. Everyone says, oh, she's like a member of a family. But that's just hypocrisy because it's not true. She's not a member of the family. Everyone says, "Do is uh, as if you were at your home. Uh, it's your home here, but it's not her home. And very often she lives or nanny lives in suburbs and in more uh, poor neighborhoods. So I wanted to show that it's very ambiguous. You want uh, your children to love her, but not too much. Hmm. You want uh, her to love your children but not too much because you want to be the mother and you want to be the one who is the loved and the more loved by, by the children. So I wanted to show this very ambiguous relationship and relationship of, of power too. Of course you have power over your nanny because you are the employer. You are paying her and you are telling her what to do but she has a great power on you because she takes care of the children. And very often mothers told me, you know, I, I don't dare telling that or this to my nanny because I'm too afraid that she's maybe going to then harm the children or be not very nice mm. to the children or get revenge on the children. So it's a very, very ambiguous relationship that can be wonderful. And uh, I have some examples in my own, own life, but that can be also very violent.
2: Mm. Um, one thing I really appreciated uh, in, in 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 this novel is that, going in and and you know having read this these very first pages, you kind of expect that the rest of the book will be about how this monster lured her way into the family, how like how she hid her monstrosity, and and she uh, she secured her place within this family, um, but it's not really like that. No, of course she has monstrous characteristics but it's not a mask that is pulled away Uh, it's not the the great reveal of the monster behind the no there
0: is no premeditation she's not um, um, calculating what she was going to do it's more like um, yeah, this is because of the mechanism of this relationship of all this hypocrisy, and uh, you know it's everyone is doing as if this house is like the stage of a theater, and everyone is playing a role, but they never say the truth to to each other and I think that she uh, at one point she lose her she loses her mind and she doesn't know. Who she is anymore, and she wants so much, so much to belong to something. I think that's the the whole point of the book is that, and that's why there there is this quote of Dostoevsky at the beginning. Everyone needs somewhere to to go. We all need a place to belong or a place to go, and if you're just a lonely person who uh, is. Uh, who no one's waste for who is nothing to to the society of course you, you you can become crazy and she is so invisible and i think that uh, the job of a nanny also uh, what is very difficult is that you need to be needed, you want people to to say we need you, we need you Louise, you are so important, without you our family can't work, and you need to be needed, to be desired, and she is so happy when they say thank you, thank you Louise for what you, you did, so now she can't imagine being separated from them uh, another time, because That's the life of nannies. They are Mm -hmm. separated. They take care of children for one year, two years, maybe more. And at one point to say, "Okay, thank you, we don't need you anymore," but of course they got attached to children and to families, and that's very, I think that's very violent. This this separation. It's like a lot of. uh, your heart is is broken many, many, many times, mm. and you know I, I think that louise she 's like a cup, a cup that every day you put with a very brutal way on on the table, and one day she she breaks, mm. and that 's why there is no premeditation it 's just that one day it 's too much
2: Can you t- uh, talk a bit about how you went about creating this character of louise uh, she 's not a straightforward character uh, by any means and and she, you were inspired by real events uh, uh, about a case about a nanny killing her children, but, but Louise isn't based no, on a not real person. All.
0: What was very difficult, the problem with the book, was that how can I write about Louise and how can I describe her, how can I explain her personality if I only describe the day-to-day life, because the day-to-day life of Louise is taking the the train from the suburb, coming to the apartment, changing diapers, cooking food and going back home and it's every day the same. So my difficulty, my wonder was how will I describe her. So what I decided to do is to take different point of views on this nanny. She's like uh, you know a silhouette and everyone is seeing her from, uh, with a certain distance. So the, the neighbor, uh, her husband. And so that's why you, they, there, is, uh, there are some flashbacks in, in the book. So at the end of the book, I think that the reader has some pieces of the puzzle but he he doesn't have all the puzzle and she's still a mystery at the end and i think that is a very 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 important thing and all the writers i love are writers who think that characters deserve some mystery i hate the idea that you can understand someone, because that's not true. You never understand someone. You never have all the pieces of the, the puzzle of someone. You only have a few, even with people to, you know very well, even with people you live with for 20 years or 50 years, I think there is always something that is unreachable in in a, mm. another person. And that's um, what literature is for, to say that people are always more complex that people have always... Uh, uh, you know, there is a very famous French uh, poet called Mallarmé who says every, every man has a secret in, in, in his heart, in his soul. And if he dies, the secret dies with him because it's something so intimate, so individual. So for me, that's the aim of literature, trying to respect the
2: secret and the mystery of every character. Mm. And it's... it's um you thematize this very uh, deftly, I think, by the end of the novel, novel by, by uh, referring to this police woman who's been trying to piece together the life of, of Louise, and she'd be trying to, to. She's been searching out every piece of information about this character that she can find. She's a metaphor Mm. of the writer, actually, Mm. because Nina Dorval, the the policeman, it's me. She's
0: trying... She's she's doing a reconstitution, and (laughs) so she she needs everyone to play the role as uh, uh, it was in the day of the, the murder. So I think that she's doing exactly the same thing as a writer. We try to do reconstitution, and we try to understand everyone, even monsters... You know, there is a a very famous uh, lawyer in France, she's a a female lawyer, and she was the first uh, female lawyer to defend a serial killer. And she defended a man called Guy Georges, who killed uh, many women and raped those women. He was very violent and very cruel. And when she decided to defend him, she was attacked by the media saying, As a woman, how can you defend this man? And she said, OK, I'm not going to trial to say that he's innocent. That's not my point. Everyone knows that Guy Georges is is guilty. But I'm going there to tell his story. Because even monsters have a story. And I think that it's very important. (coughs) And in our times and our societies, where sometimes we like to say that it's black or white and people are good or monsters, it's very important to accept that Monsters are not animals, they are human beings. And there is a certain humanity in them. And if we don't face that, the fact that in, even in ourselves, there is always a monstruosity that can come and reveal itself. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very fascinated by that, by the monstrosity of, of people and also by their humanity. Hmm. W- would you say it's a book about evil? Um, I don't know, because uh, I think that evil goes maybe with premeditation. It goes with what you were saying before, the fact that you are calculating and that you want to harm people. Uh, Louise, is uh, when she, she commits the murder, I think that she's already crazy. She's already in another reality. And, uh, you know, psychiatrists, they say that this kind of murder are called murders of solidarity, which... It sounds very weird, but those people, they feel that I'm killing you because life is too hard and I'm killing you so we're going together in a better world and we are going to live in a better condition and it's going to be... So it's um, for me it's different from evil, but um, I must say that I was... When I was a teenager and when I began to be a, a, a reader, I was fascinated by reader, by writers who were uh, uh, exploring uh, evil, and especially Dostoevsky. I think that's probably the the biggest
2: question for
0: for literature and the biggest question for
2: for a, a writer. Mm. I was um, like on that point about the humanity of evil, and also um, what you said before uh, about how. Leading up to this, this killing—it's a, it's a really heartbreaking rendition of how, quite like, like quite like, just before the killings, uh, what she wants the most of everything is that the mother in the family gets pregnant again, so that there's a new baby for her to love and take care of, and and that will make everything nice and it's just uh yeah she's so
0: desperate you know it's like when you're so desperate that someone is going to leave you or that you're so desperate that you're going to be alone and she just she thinks that she she can't bear it that it's just impossible that she has to do everything to make this separation impossible and uh, I think that maybe the definition of madness is when you don't make Uh, any difference between reality and fantasy when you think that your dream and reality are are the same thing. So at one point she decides, yeah, of course I have the solution. If she has another child, I will stay to take care of the the children. And that's very sad also because uh, it's very servile I don't know how to say she thinks that she can only stay to help and yeah. to be needed and to, to serve she never thinks that she can have her own life and do something for her
2: so and as a woman also she, she, she doesn't want her own body to grow another human being she wants another woman's body to grow yeah another and human uh, being the
0: question of the body is very important and it's important in all my books i think that i'm obsessed with with the body and um in this book the body of the the children and the vulnerability of the mm. the children you know uh, as a nanny and as a woman who always took care of others because in her past she took care also of old people she she knows about the vulnerability of the of the bodies bodies of very old women or the bodies of baby and uh, I think that you have uh, the feeling a uh, certain vertigo when you are a mother and you take care of children. I remember that the first time I, I looked at my child, I felt fear, so mm. much fear. Because before feeling love, I felt fear, I think, because I, I was like, he needs me so much. And if I'm not here, who is going to take care of him, to feed him? And this vulnerability, this... The the fact that he was so dependent on me was extraordinary. This little, little body, Mm -hmm. but this body that can do anything for himself, he can't protect himself. So I think, yeah, that's um, a vertigo that can also
2: create very weird, very weird feelings. Um, Your previous book... Uh, which hasn't been translated into Norwegian yet, but I've heard it's, it's forthcoming. Um, and it's also available in English, for those of you who, have, who, who doesn't read French. Um, this is not a, b- a book about crime, per se. It's about a woman who goes to quite extreme lengths um, in order to experience danger through through violence and, and through sex. And um, so you obviously go to very dark places in your fiction, and 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 you you mentioned your interest in Dostoevsky, uh, but do you have you formulated why you ch- choose these themes? Because it might seem easier not to.
0: I don't know. I think that the first time I wrote, and I wrote something very violent. Something it was about the body, and it was um, I don't know how to say it was so exciting to write that and to be able to not to say out loud but to put on a paper this thought that was uh, a something I couldn't say out loud to someone something I couldn't share some a part of my secret but I wrote it and I felt so free and I felt so powerful and I felt something that makes me want to be a writer until my my death I feel felt the Yeah, an enthusiasm, something wonderful. And for me, writing is being free, being totally free and being free to say what you can't say in in real life. You know, I had a very good education thanks to my parents who were very uh, careful that their daughter were going to be polite and say the good things and respect everyone. And also I was living in... um, in the Moroccan bourgeoisie, so it's always don't say this and don't say that. And it's not good to say this and say that. And for all my life I was like, I want to say it, I want to say it so much. Mm. And uh, so I found literature and I was like, yeah, now I can mm. say all I want to say. And I think that, yeah, I, I want to be a writer because I want to be a, uh, not... Polite and and violent and to say and to say the truth because uh, in real life you have to put a mask and you have to be nice and you have to adapt and um, and that's fair but I think that what literature gives us is this liberty to go in places where you can't go when you're uh, yeah when, when you live in society and for Adele for instance this darkness. I would be absolutely unable to experience it because I'm, you know, as he was saying before about fear, I'm a very, I'm always afraid. I'm afraid of everything. I'm afraid of walking in the street at night. I'm afraid I I can't drive. I can't do bike. I know nothing. I'm very afraid, but when I ride, I can do bike. I can drive a big <laughs> car and a boat, and I can be a princess and a prince and whatever I want. So that's wonderful. It's empowering.
2: Um, so let's talk. <laughs> Thank you. Um, let's talk a bit about your own reading and, and how this has inspired your writing. Um, the lullaby. It's 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 a it's a very like intense psychological chamber. Piece, I would say, Uh, it's written in a fairly economical, fairly sparse, uh, direct language, but it's highly evocative. Um, Where did this way of writing come from? Do you have any literary role models for for this kind of?
0: You know, I think that it takes a lot of time to find your own voice, to find your language. And I tried many, many different things and I had a lot of uh, failures too, rejections, because I couldn't find my my voice. And then you have also to adapt this voice this language to your subject i think that for uh, the killing of children uh, being to the lyricism wouldn't fit it's not a good idea it's better i think to stay with a certain distance and describe that in in a simple and very precise way and um, the author i love are very Different from one another. I have, uh, uh, I don't know, an author like Maris Conté or Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's a lot of, it's very colorful and a lot of fantasy. But I also also love uh, Welbeck and Camus and Marguerite Duras and uh, Annie Ernaux. So um, I can't say that I'm influenced by uh, an author because the day you become an author, yeah you have your own i don't know you have your own voice and you hope that yeah that it's a little bit different from from the others so it's like if i've eaten a lot and a lot of food and now yeah i'm digesting this food and i have my my own i'm doing my my own thing now mm. but uh yeah it's very important to to read but you know when i write for instance i don't read i never read when mm. i when i write because you're too influenced and you know if you read a, a very, very good author you want to kill yourself at the end of mm-hmm. the day. So that's not a very good idea. If you read a very bad author, you're like, <laughs> uh, you see what I'm doing and you do nothing and you're very depressed. So not a very good idea to read when you
2: write. Um, you've mentioned Anna Krenina and Madame Bovary, some of your favorite literary yeah. classics. And strikingly, both of these novels are about upper or middle class uh, women who feel trapped by domestic life and uh, this is obviously a team in your work as well you know in Adele you make out that it is the confines of the home in part that pushes Adele towards these extreme actions and and also not such an extreme degree with Miriam as well in, in Lullaby she feels suffocated and and she, she, she needs to break out of this yeah. uh, this. Uh... the question of the home of the house
0: of the domestic space is probably the most important question for for me I think that um, a lot of people think that the domestic space and the home is a, a nice place soft uh, sort of shelter where you come after, after work and after the violence of, of society but I think that it's a political space and it's a very violent space. it's a space where there are there is a lot of uh, relationship of domination between men and women, between adults and children between employers and domestic. This is a place of violence of course if you look at violence between men and, and uh, a husband and wife, violence towards children, incest, pedophilia, all the crimes begin where. In the house, in the home, in the secret of the home. So this this place for me is very, very interesting because it's a place of secret, it's a place of crime and it's also a place where the question of feminism is very important. Where is the place of the woman in the house? And... Uh, uh, the more feminist you are and the less the place is only in the kitchen and she Mm. can go out. So the the question of of the, the, the space for women is very important. I love Virginia Woolf. Not only for uh, a place of, of, uh, of my own, a room think. of, uh, a room of uh, one's own. own, but also for another text uh, she wrote called The Angel of the House. It's lovely. It's yeah. really lovely. And she says that The Angel of the House, it's the, this fantasy that every woman has this very nice woman who is always nice to everyone, to her husband, to her children, who will always sacrifice herself and she will give food to everyone. And if there is not enough, she will say, no, no, I'm not hungry, you know and she will sit on the bad chair and she will always sacrifice herself and of course when you are a writer it's impossible to be the angel of the house because at the middle of the afternoon when your children say I'm hungry and I want to play you're like yes but I want to write (laughs) and go out of my office you have to be selfish Mm. and she says Virginia Woolf I killed her I killed her and if one day I have to go in front of a, a judge because I killed the angel of the house I would say it was for my defense it was her or me
2: She also she she grew up with an angel of the house her yeah, mother was an angel exactly. of the house and her father was Me a
0: too mm. I, I grew up mm. with an angel of the house my mother wa- my mother was she she still is so yes I think it's very very difficult to uh, for a woman to find her place in the house and to say my place is not only to take care of you and I need a place of my own and I need also to go out because I feel something, sometimes I feel trapped because uh, I think that in our education people tell you, you know when you're going to be a mother, you will love your children so much and it will be so natural and you will only want to stay with them and to take care of them you will never get enough and I got enough and enough <laughs> and enough and and then I was conscious of the fact that it's very difficult to say that in front of people because they look at you like oh poor children they have this, uh, yeah she's not an angel of the house at all so yeah I think that's this domestic space is very, very important in terms of, of politics and of literature, also.
2: Mm-hmm. And you also, like like both Tolstoy and Flaubert, uh, Does she, uh, do that you. It seems like the home is a place of isolation where one gets lonely, you know, and, 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 and both Miriam, in part, and also but Louise, especially, she's very, very lonely yeah and you know
0: when you take care of little children you feel that when you because you 're not in the same rhythm as other people who get early get up early in the morning go to work and speak with other adults and mm-hmm. come back home and they are tired and you are all day long in an apartment with a child. And when it's winter, you don't want to go out because you don't want the child to to get sick. And sometimes, yeah, you you get a little bit mad and you look outside like a prisoner who wants to, yeah, just to have a walk and to speak with adults of something else than diaper and puree and mm-hmm. those those kind of, uh, of things. And I think that a writer can understand that, you know, because... Uh, during the afternoon, like every writer, I have a walk in, in the street and sometimes I'm like, what are, doing, what are people doing in apartments in the middle of the afternoon? And so I'm always looking so you can see old people, mainly old people or children, people who are not productive, who are not working, who doesn't uh, make money. In, mm. And in our society, your values comes with making money. And children and old people, they are like in the margins of, mm. of society. And um, as a writer, so as someone who doesn't have an office and doesn't have... Uh, I like to live with those people, the invisible, the, the margin of societies.
2: I have to ask: Have you have you read Ibsen, A Doll's House? Yes, yeah. of course. And and the rings. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. in
0: yeah, yeah, and it's a very important book for me. And in my next novel, there is a lot, a lot of things about Ibsen.
2: Mm? Yeah, really. Yeah. Can, you,
0: can you tell no, us more? It's also a book uh, that takes place in the house, and it's also the, the story of a, of a couple, and she the woman, she has the feeling that she went from her father to the ha- from the hands of her father to the hands of her husband. and then she became a mother and that she never had a moment in her life where she was only her, the woman of no one, not a mother, not a daughter, not a wife. So there are uh, some
2: quotes of, of Ibsen, and she's obsessed with, the, with this book. That's I, I'm my like one fight with A Doll's House is that it's written because the hard thing Nora does is not leaving her husband really it's leaving her children yeah but it's written by a man so I, I don't trust that Ibsen truly knew what he put Nora through I, I can't trust the fact that he actually knows what it costs for a mother to leave her children yeah so I'm, I'm happy that. The but, you know, it's very in interesting
0: hands. because in my first book, at the end of the, my first book, you don't really know if the woman is going to come back to her house and to uh, live with her husband and her son again, or if she got crazy and got to get suicide. Or and what was really, really surprising and fascinating for me is that everyone was saying, but... She can't leave her child. That's impossible. A woman will never abandon her child. And I was like, why would you say that? Yes, maybe she would. But for them, it was the worst worst thing, and it was impossible. And I remember that when I was living in Morocco, one day I met someone from the Spanish consulate. And he told me, you know, we hire a lot of uh, women to go to Spain for six months to work in the fields uh, for uh, strawberries. And he said, but we only hire women who are mothers because we know that if they live, that children at, in Morocco, they will come back and they will not try to flee. But hmm. that, that's very cruel at the same time to have this kind of, of thinking.
2: You touch upon the same team in the in, uh, in Lobby, where uh, when they, if they go through these interviews, uh, the couple interview. Perspective nannies, uh, and they get this tip from a friend that you should, if they have children of their own, it's better if they're in their homeland. Um, so she has much time for mm, you. So, 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 uh, yeah. women leave their children all the time, either by uh, need or of necessity, course, but of course. But
0: I also wanted to show that uh, uh, feminism is sometimes very ambiguous too. That feminism is for us dominant women or white women or but not for the others because uh, yeah yeah i am a feminist but it would be nice if your children are in the homeland so you can take care of uh, of my my children and i think that was also something very important for me in in the book it was to show that uh, the massification of the work of women makes the fact that it's like russian dolls for a woman to work you need another woman to work and mm-hmm. another woman to work but at the end you have this little doll that no one sees because she's in Mm. so many other dolls. And uh, yes, we are feminists, but of course we have also to look at the... Maybe there is more difference between me and a nanny than between me and a man. Uh, There is more inequality between me and an immigrant nanny than between me and my husband. That's probably the, the truth. So I think that... W- uh, as women and as feminists, we should also look at the situation of other women and try to make our feminism more practical and more real for them.
2: Reading your work from from a Norwegian perspective, I'm, I'm very much struck by how much how how um, universal your description of human nature um, rings in my ears, and at the same time at the same time another like lullaby. Really makes clear the huge extent to which any human being are subjected to political forces the structural forces built by, by the society in which uh, they grow up and I sense this is the important important point for you as well to to bring out
0: yeah, but I think that um, it's very important to begin with intimacy to begin with the personality of the character and then. Politics comes, but you don't really control it. Um, I think that it would be a mistake and it would be very dangerous to begin a novel with, okay, now I want to tell them what's my point of view on the world. And I want to tell them about politics. Don't write a novel, write an essay. If you want to write a novel, I think that you have to write about people, about feelings, about flesh, about situation, about life. Um, For me, literature is nothing else than life. And sometimes when you read, you even forget that you 're reading you 're just living with those characters you 're seeing them, you can feel them, you can smell what they smell. So I think that the most important is to begin with that and then, as Margaret Duras used to say it 's the writing that writes. the more you write, and the more things occurs, and you don 't really control that and that 's what I was saying at the beginning I'm, so sometimes i 'm really sorry to disappoint you, but we don 't control anything and uh, When writers say, oh, "I do this," the truth is that in majority of of cases we don 't really control um, it's yeah it 's the writing that writes there is something magical with this exercise of of writing I think it 's like sports someone who who trains a lot, and at one point you you begin to have feelings because yeah, you train so much that you Things happened, but uh, it's a lot about yeah about work and being focused.
2: Mm. But in your in your work uh, through this process, you, you touch about uh, about themes that are clearly politically loaded themes, and and also what's uh, so excellent that as you as you pointed to earlier, you reference how well the private is political, motherhood is polit- political, family home. It's it's political, it's a political space, Uh, but do you consider yourself a political writer? Would you say that?
0: You know, I think that writing is political. When people say, are you uh, an écrivain engagé, as we say in French, when you decide to spend your whole life uh, in an office writing, reading, yeah, it's a commitment. It's a commitment for life. I don't know if it's a political commitment, but it's a commitment, and uh, it's a commitment to to literature and to a certain truth. To a certain, you have to be sincere because it's impossible to be a writer if you're not sincere. It's uh, impossible to lie. I think so. Yeah, it's a commitment, and in a certain way, it's political.
2: You've also taken on uh, official. Political duties. You you function as an ambassador for francophone uh, francophone affairs, and that's why I speak English here. Yes. <laughs> um, thank you uh, for the French government and uh, Macron. Um, can you tell us? about, uh, just perhaps uh, quickly, just tell us about what's what's francophone. What what is francophone literature? What is uh, what are francophone affairs? And what made you take on this role? Um. So, francophone
0: literature, I would define it in a very simple way it's literature written in French. And I think that it's very important to get away from all the ideological. Uh, meanings that came with this francophone word, because uh, it because
2: it's got connotation too. Yeah, colonialism, mm-hmm.
0: the uh, connotation, and the connotation also of what we call France-Africa. So the rela- very um, strange relationship between France and and uh, Africa for many, many, many years. Um, I decided to say yes for many reasons. The first one was that um, I was born in in Morocco, and Morocco is a plurilingual country. The truth is that it's plurilingual. So we speak Arabic, we speak Darija, which is the Arabic we speak in the street, we speak French, Spanish, and a lot of barbarian languages. When you are born Moroccan, you speak a lot of languages. That's like that. And actually, France is the only francophone country where you speak only one language, French. In all other countries, in Switzerland, in Canada, in Haiti, in Senegal, we speak multiple languages. (coughs) But at the same time, for many reasons, because of colonization, and then because of conservative governments, because of people who decided to use the Uh, and to manipulate the history of colonization to put shame on those who speak French, the question of French language became more and more um, complicated and there was a sort of ambiguity. And the truth is that in countries like Morocco and in many countries, French language is associated to the elite, to the bourgeoisie. You speak French because you belong to uh, the the higher class, uh, social class. But... I want to fight against that because I want to fight against people who were telling me, oh, you speak French, so you're not a good Moroccan. So I'm like... And I want also to fight against people who, in France, when the government decided at one point that maybe we could teach Arabic in in school, who said, oh, no, we shouldn't uh, shouldn't teach Arabic because people are going to become (laughs) Islamists. So I think that the... ideologization of languages are very, very dangerous. When you begin to say that speaking a language makes you uh, a traitor, Mm -hmm. that if you like uh, uh, this language, you're not a good person, you're uh, you're a traitor to your culture, that you're supposed to speak one language, to read one book, to have only this religion, and to act like that, and I hate that. And I think that... um, learning language. And I defend French, but the truth is I defend plurilinguism. I defend the fact that we should speak a lot of languages. And um, I think the more language we speak, the more human we are. We learn so much by by languages. And I think also that it's the future. The future of humanity is to speak many languages. And what I love when I go to, to Africa, and I was... Uh, was just yesterday. I was with the different representative of all those countries. We were 84 people from Africa, from Haiti, from Canada, from People from of every color, every type, whatever you want. And we were all speaking French. And we were all making um, jokes and laughing. And one was telling me about a, a book he read, literature of, of his country. So I think it's very, very important to stop being in ideology and just trying to use language as a link to make people speak together, to make people laugh together, to make people travel, read, so I think it's a, a tool for culture and a tool for universality. And we should stop saying, no, I speak my language,
2: you speak yours, and that's okay like that. Mm. There's um, uh, Stefan Schweig, the, the, the Austrian writer, he writes, I think there's a really beautiful passage in his book, uh, The World of Yesterday, yeah. uh, where he, he it's, it's at the beginning of the World War I, uh, and all of a sudden you're not supposed to talk to French writers anymore, and he's not supposed to... And he writes a
0: letter to them, and he says, oh, my friends, we we can't be friends anymore, but you will see. Mm.
2: And and his point is that once we start letting ideology guide our conversation with real human beings, then, of course, the war is lost, or the the violence has won. Um, Yeah, of course, and I think also that...
0: Now we must accept this diversity because of history, because of a lot of things. A country like Morocco, a country like France, we are countries of diversity. We speak many languages. We have different faces, different types, and that's all right. That's a good thing, and we should uh, defend that
2: So and assume that and defend it. Mm-hmm. Um, are you at all worried that having an official political role uh, can uh, intrude upon your artistic voice or artistic freedom or, or perhaps rather you know the way you are read, uh, if you are read in, through a political lens? No,
0: because it's not a political role. You know, I'm a diplomat, so I work for an international organization. I don't work for the French government. I'm an ambassador inside of an international organization of francophonie, so it's very, uh, I don't know what to say, it's not very political. It's um, yeah, it's a role of diplomat, and I try to promote and to, to defend uh, yeah French culture and French language. So I, I think that for a writer, it's not illogical to defend his
2: language. Um, speaking of, of, of traveling, um, the reception of this book has been quite quite staggering, of, of lullaby. Uh, that is, it's, um, I read somewhere, it was the most read book in France in 2016. Um, and it's been translated or on its way to be translated into more than 30, 40 languages. 44, I yeah, think. That's, yeah, that's, um, so I'm guessing that the amount of not only of... And, and it's the kind of book that after you read it, you wanted to speak to someone about it because you want to discuss um, what it says. And um, so the amount not only of critical response, but readers' response you have gotten must be quite staggering. And I can't even begin to imagine how many conversations like this uh, <laughs> you've had in the last couple of years. But um, is it possible to pick out any... Specific threads um, in this response. Uh, I'm thinking especially of the reader's response. Uh, what have they responded most readily to? You
0: know, one day I was with an audience like that, and I said that I couldn't do bike. And a few days after, I received a letter of a man saying, I'm going to learn to you how to do bike. You really need to know. <laughs> so, okay, so first you have to buy a bike, and then you put yourself, and he. <laughs> So, so sometimes, yeah, very often the letters you receive are letters from crazy people, the truth is. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of letters from crazy people, very crazy people. And uh, no, but I think that maybe the most uh, wonderful, and no, I wouldn't say wonderful, but um, moving reaction were from nannies. Because those women who feel they are invisible, even if... The nanny is a very classical character in literature. There have always been nannies in literature since the the uh, the Atlantique, since a mm. um, very long time. But um, a nanny told me, you know, I was a nanny for many, many years in, in in Lyon, in France, and she said one day I quit it. And I say I need to go because I'm going to do something really wrong. Yeah. And she could feel that she, yeah, that it was. Too much, and that maybe she was going to be violent. And I remember her, her and I was very like, thank you for telling me that. So sometimes you you don't know what to say because people are telling you very intimate thing. And I think that the most common reaction was also from women saying, I wouldn't dare say. What you wrote, but that's true that when I was taking care of my babies at the beginning, I wanted sometimes to kill myself and just to open the window and to jump because I was so lonely and so tired, and I felt that no one would understand me. And also, you know, in France, there is a lot of um, social pressure on women who don't work. It's like a sort of inversion of of feminism. And when a woman says, what do you do for life? And she says, oh, I'm at home and take care of my children. Everyone is turning like, okay, (laughs) not interesting. And um, women who don't work, a lot of them told me that, yeah, that can be very violent because people don't really respect their choice Mm. to take care of the the children. And... um, in Brazil, it was very interesting because it was another way to to read the book and a very fancy woman in Sao Paulo said, oh, you're completely right. Nannies are terrible. I hate them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're I the like,
0: worst. No, that was not my point. <laughs>
2: um, I'm, I'm, I, I think that... Uh uh, what you said about you know the pressure of, of getting back to work is something that would resonate uh, very well to a Norwegian and Scandinavian audience as well because you know in, in in Norway it's like I think 90% of all children go to kindergarten from like they're one year old until they start school so there's the, the market for nannies are very limited in Norway there are few or pairs and, and stuff but but you do have uh, that this, the if then women choose not to put their children in kindergarten they are uh, people get suspicious you know what is it do you want to
0: and in eastern europe when i was in prague for instance that it's different they people were saying to me it's very bad to take someone to take care of children because i, I watched on the on the tv they said a psychologist said that if you give your children to a stranger he's going to be to have a mental illness after i was like oh so my children they are not in a good position <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's very different it depends on the on the culture in japan they didn't really understand um, the, the the question of the nanny because they don't have that it's the grandparents who take care of the of the of the children in china they understood actually very well the the book because now with the end of the the policy of the unique child mm. now they have the right to have um, many children and uh, they are more and more wealthy so they can hire nannies and there were some uh, cases of nanny and i think it was in shanghai who, a nanny who killed not only the children, but the mother, too. She put the house on, on fire, and it was just before the launching of my book.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, for marketing, it was very mm. good. You know. <laughs> but it, it, it really goes to show how, how you know, yeah, as, as, as I mentioned before, it's the uh, some aspects of motherhood and mothering are universal truly universal and yeah. and some are always dependent on a cultural uh, context.
0: Yeah, but that's also the beauty of it that I think that you feel it when you have a child uh, the the moment you give birth and the moment the first moment you have with a child you feel a certain animality but I don't say that in a, in a wrong uh, with a uh, in a wrong way I, I mean you feel that you going to the root of, of, of something, and you know that no matter how rich you are, no matter where you live, we all give birth the same way, and we all take our children the same way, and it's always the same, to, to, to die and to to be born, it's always the, the same, so I think that there is something very moving in the, this relationship that you have with a baby, because yeah, you know it's very, very universal. and. The truth is that when you travel all around the world and uh, you see a baby and every woman has that, oh, we all have the same mm. way of acting and looking at babies and touching uh, a woman who is pregnant, for instance, all those kind of things. Yeah, it's very, very universal.
2: So um, what's next for you in the... Oh,
0: that's exactly what my mother asked me. What's <laughs> next for you? And I said I don't know. <laughs> uh, writing, I suppose. Mm.
2: Do you consider um, it's the um, uh, as you mentioned the, the book you mentioned earlier? Do you consider it in relation to to your previous two works?
0: Mm, not really, because it's going to be a trilogy. So I'm going to write three terms of. Uh, this is the story of a family, a little bit inspired by the story of, uh, of my own family. It's fiction, but it's inspired by the situation of my grandmother, because my grandmother was French. She was from Alsace, the east uh, of France. And she married my grandfather, who was uh, uh, an Arab. He was an uh, Algerian and he was in the army he was a soldier and um, what we call an indigene he was a soldier in the colonization uh, army and so she got married to him and she went to morocco in 1945 and so you can imagine a woman from France, and she was very tall, and my uh, my grandfather was small, and she was blonde with green eyes, and my father was my grandfather was very dark. So it was a yeah a very strange couple, and you wouldn't forget them when you you see them for the for the first time. And it's very funny because when they got married, my my grandmother was down downstairs, and my grandfather <laughs> upstairs, so that they can be even on the on the picture. And so I want to to tell the, the story of this couple who have different cultures, different religion, live in a little city where there is colonization and a lot of racism. And how do you deal with that? Because first, you, you have to deal with... Uh, they had a lot of economic uh, issues. There were a couple, and I think as a couple, you have to deal with a lot of, of things. But this question of culture, of... Uh, who is going to dominate in terms of cultures? Which religion is going to prevail? What are you going to transmit to your children? And I think it's, uh, it can come to a lot of violence because of, of that. So um, I'm, now I'm in, into this book, and the, 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 fir- the second part will be in the 70s, and then the third part in the, today
2: so lovely <laughs> we're looking forward to it <laughs> thank you thank you very much thank you very much for thank uh, you. this conversation and I must say that
0: I've never seen an audience with so much men the I'm well stunned <laughs> That's and I've travelled <laughs> in 25 <laughs> countries I've never seen so much men
2: that's uh, that's serious uh, that uh, uh, the American novelist she always says when she comes she comes to Scandinavia she's always amazed by the men. Yeah, uh, it's, so. Um, th- but thank you to everyone uh, who came out. Thank and you, <laughs> and male and female. Um, and Lille will stay on to sign books. Yeah, afterwards. of course, of course. So uh, there's a treat, uh, well, and once again, thank you. Thank very you. Much. Thank you very much.